Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, update number two of the president's management agenda shows some real results. Not a crisis, but some cause for concern about who's leaving the federal workforce. And DHS drops an S-bomb on Silicon Valley. It's Thursday, August 4th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Three new projects are getting money from the Technology Modernization Fund. The Labor Department gets $7.2 million for a labor certification system. AmeriCorps gets $14 million to replace a legacy system for local community service. USAID gets $5.2 million for a cyber risk reduction project. Jason Gray is leaving his post as Chief Information Officer at the Education Department. He's been CIO there since June 2016. He was Associate CIO for Transportation before that. No details yet on when he'll leave or who will replace him. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ann Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for Defense Talks. It's happening September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup and register through the link in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Performance.gov lists what the Office of Management and Budget calls a snapshot of gold team's work on the priorities of the president's management agenda. Individual agencies are listing updates to their priority goals, too. Chris Mim is adjunct professor of public administration at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. He's former managing director for strategic issues at the Government Accountability Office. Chris, welcome. Thanks for coming on. You're my PMA whisperer. What do you see in this latest round of updates, both for the broad priority goals, the three big ones of the PMA vision, and what the individual agencies are doing? Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis. And as always, it's a pleasure to be with you. I think there's a, a couple of things that are important here. Is that uh, first, it, just to, for everyone to keep in mind, this is the the second of the quarterly updates, and uh, the I, I think the important thing that we're seeing in mind is impl- is that agencies are putting in place the implementation infrastructures, the the offices, the approaches that they're going to need to actually make sure that they execute on these commitments. Too often in the past where we've seen breakdowns either at the the cross-agency priority goal or the agency priority goal level, it's been even when there's been good aspirational goals set, there hasn't been an implementation plan behind it and the capacity to actually execute on that. And conversely, where there's been success, for example, the permitting or or personnel security clearances um, in the past, that's been because they've had good implementation of program management office to actually execute on this. And so that's what I think is one of the positive developments that we're seeing across the board, across the priority goals of the agencies, as well as the central, uh, the, the cap goals from the administration. What does building a good foundation like you're describing there look like, Chris? Well, I think the first thing it does is it, it makes we make sure that we have the right leadership in place. And that's the right mix of career leadership to that basically has the knowledge and the in the history of, of the both the issue and the agency, as well as the political leadership that can make the connection towards the, the larger political agenda of, of the administration. So we need to make sure that we have the right set of leadership. Second is that we need to make sure that we have the right players across both the agency and at times across the federal government to be involved in this, is that the best outcomes, in fact, you know, any of the outcomes that we're seeking to achieve, aren't going to be achieved by one agency or program acting alone and in isolation. 
It's rather going to be patterns of agencies working together and patterns of programs, often across levels of government or even sectors. And so the best goals are those that take a genuinely enterprise approach or what the administration often calls a whole of government approach um, to these issues and make sure that they are that these different approaches are involved in aligned and coordinated in an effective way. And then the third thing that they make sure that they do is that they actually then have the staff and the resources to execute on that. On that. So it's not just a leadership. It's not just involving people at a stakeholder level as kind of an other duties as assigned on a position description, but actually making sure that people have the, the time and the resources in order to execute. So to the point of all three of those, then that's why I guess it's heartening to look over who's running all of these things, who's responsible for all of these things. And you see a mix of leadership at the very highest levels, GSA administrator, OPM director, and others down to the second, third tier of leadership. And then also, as you said, that mix of careers and political appointees, that the people who own the stuff on the president's management agenda are a mixture of all of those things. That's exactly the case. And in fact, in the best of the agency priority goals, that have been posted on performance.gov, you'll see where they will identify a larger implementation team that's in place and even kind of have a, at times, even a little org chart that's in place that shows the relationships and who's going to be doing what across the, the agency in order to, to execute on the goal in order to achieve the outcome. And so it's it's really, you know, getting the right people in place, delineating the sets of responsibilities that they're going to have, and then making sure that they're effectively coordinated and aligned in order to to achieve the outcome. Some of these updates, Chris, struck me as making a lot of progress. I mean, we've been around a long time. We've seen word salad when these updates come out yeah. in various things. This one, this one is one that really struck me. Customer experience priority goal teams and customer experience leads have already conducted assessments of all 35 high-impact service providers and launched human-centered design research with the public about the five designated life experiences. That sounds like a heavy lift. That sounds like a big deal. I, I would agree. And I, and I think it's to, to the administration's credit and all the people that are working on it at both the political and the career level. Um, this notion of the high impact agencies actually goes all the way back to the Clinton administration. And they started out with these, these agencies. And the idea here is that these are the subset of federal agencies, often between 20 or 30. I mean, each administration has a different count that, that account for the overwhelming majority, often 90 percent or more of citizen interactions with government. And their idea here is that twofold. One is that we want to fix the citizen government interaction for these particular um, agency interactions. But second, if we get it better here, that will have spillover effects to overall improving citizen confidence and trust in government, which, as we know, these days is, is a big issue you know, politically for, for us. Um, so the idea is, is let's focus on these. Let's get that right. And then we're going to be you know, good going forward. I think that the two aspects of this that you pointed out that are particularly important is you know, for the current effort is bringing a, a, a human-centered design approach to this and, and saying, let's start from the viewpoint in the perspective of the customer and work back from there. Too often in the past, government has been organized around its priorities, its prerogatives, its timeframes, and not the priorities, prerogatives, and timeframes of the citizen or the customer. This seeks to stand that on its head or on its feet, as the case may be. The second thing that I think that it does that, that's very powerful on this, as you mentioned, is the life experiences approach, is not forcing an individual to navigate 
navigate the the Byzantine, uh, um, you know, organizational structure of the federal government, but saying I have a problem or I have an issue or I have a, a life event. What's the array of services that are available to me? Sorry for going on on that. <laughs> no, I, I think that's tremendously important because that comports with everything that I talk to folks on this program about, about digitization. And I've beaten this drum and I probably said it to you before. So I apologize if I'm repeating myself. But when you combine that life journey approach with the digitization that organizations are trying to undertake, it strikes me. You and I have seen many times over the years where one administration or another will want to move a box from one part of an organization to another part of an organization or from one agency to another agency or something like that. And if we start thinking about this from a customer journey or a life journey experience, and digitization really becomes what everybody thinks it becomes, it, it seems to me that that idea of a reorg becomes almost a moot point because everything's connected digitally in such a way that it doesn't really matter where something lives because that digital journey that a citizen follows, or even an internal customer, even a, an agency employee follows, really becomes maybe not seamless, but more seamless than it is today. Oh, I, I completely agree. I mean, I have a a former colleague that uh, used to refer to the the problem of boxology, as he puts it, which is this notion of we can move boxes around and on an organization chart and somehow think that we've resolved coordination or you know issues where that's you know that's that's not the case. And in many ways, kind of at a at a large level, departmental level, the formation of the Department of the Homeland Security is you know in all the struggles that they had from a management standpoint in the early years is an example of the the failures of boxology. But to, but the the digitization that's taking place. And it's, you know, it's in many ways an outgrowth of this philosophy that took heart at the local government level a number of years ago with the 311, which is, you know, kind of the no wrong number, is that we're not going to force us as citizens to know which government agency we should call if there's graffiti. Is that, you know, they is that a sanitation or is that, you know, calling the, the you know, the, the roads and public works? I mean, who do we have to call them? No, you call and then the, the back office will invisibly kind of move that around. With digitization, obviously, that becomes much more automated and therefore much faster. And also follow-up becomes much easier as a result of that because you can track progress as to um, using digital tools as well. The Business of Government Priority Team Performance.gov says define goal statements for federal federal procurement and federal financial management in this round of updates. I mean, they're really getting into the stuff that is not super sexy, but is really important to exactly what they call it, the business of government, Chris. Yes. And that's the thing is that, you know, that the whole world shouldn't, you know, does not care about this and should not have to care about this. And that's, that's, that's the important point on this is that, you know, you and I and your listeners and probably, you know, a few hundred other people, you know, do care very deeply about the process and need to be focused on that. But what the what the, the average person needs to be worried about is or, or should be concerned about is, are they getting effective and efficient products and services? Are they getting, you know, return on investment? Are they getting outcomes for government? And these infrastructure types deals issues, or issues, as you said, aren't sexy. Um, but they're absolutely essential in order to execute on the outcomes and the goals that citizens demand. Uh, the phrase should not have to care about these is really important because that's exactly right. In our community of people, it's really important. It really matters how all the pieces fit together is a big deal outside of it. Nobody should be able to see one way or the other it should be seamless, shouldn't it? No, absolutely. I mean, I, I, 
I go back to, you know, in early 1990 or in, in early the original GPRA. So this would be 1993, 1994. One of the things that I was asked to do was to to go up and, and you know, brief congressional staff on GPRA, the original GPRA, and, and basically on, on what their members had just voted for. And something that struck with me, stuck with me that, you know, through all those years was I was given a briefing and really evangelizing for, you know, can I have an amen for performance measurements, that sort of thing. And I had a congressional staffer say to me, you know, just cut me off and say, Chris, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't care about all this GPRA stuff. I care about how my programs are going. And what that told me is that I was selling wholesale and they wanted retail. And that, you know, in a sense that I needed to care about strategic plans, performance plans, goals, measures, alignment, all. And that's all vitally important stuff. What they needed to make sure, you know, care about is do they have the information that they need in order to make decisions in a timely manner and in a format in which they need that information. Likewise, with citizens, and I think that's one of the benefits of performance.gov is that over time, as we begin to start seeing more of the results rather than kind of the here's where we are on the on the milestones, then that's when we really start getting the, you know, the, the pop, as it were, from from citizens when they begin to see, aha, you know, eight, you know, um, Traffic fatalities, one of the priority goals of, of Department of Transportation, are going down. When they start to see that, that that will be a big deal. Um, internationally, when we start seeing uh, you know uh, maternal mortality rates going down, that will be a big deal. Improvements in equity, which spread across a number of the goals, when that gets better, that will be that's when it becomes more meaningful for citizens. Chris Mim, great to talk to you as always. Thank you, sir. My great pleasure, Francis. Take care. You can read more about the six-month updates to the president's management agenda in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. The 2022 edition of Fed Talks is less than three weeks away now. The federal CIO, Claire Martirana, and the DOD CIO, John Sherman, are just two of the high-level leaders in government, industry, and academia that you'll see there. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City, August 24th. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal government is not in crisis. That's the headline from new research about the federal workforce attrition rate from the Partnership for Public Service. Angela Bailey's founder and CEO of Ananda Life. She's former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Angie, welcomes. Great to see you again. Federal government's not in crisis. That's good news. The bad news that I take away from this is certain critical elements of the federal workforce, the partnership rights, are in a state of stress. What's your takeaway from the work that the partnership's done here in looking at attrition in the government? Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis. First of all, thank you for having me on on your show. Um, so as I looked at the partnership study, I first of all, I was just really thrilled that somebody actually did a study um, to put the data to it because there's so many urban legends that are out there with regard to the crisis and I don't think that it's a crisis, generally speaking. So I absolutely agree with, the, of course, the findings of the partnership. But to answer your question with regard to these different sectors and things, um, you know, that's not surprising, right? That our younger workforce, we know that. That's why we're designing personnel system, or at least personnel we're pushing for them to say, let's allow people to come in and out of government because they're not going to stay for a 30-year career. I think that the study shows that. And then, of course, the folks at the higher end, right, the 15s, the SESs, that they are leaving, yes, because it's an age thing. Like, we're just aging out. I mean, that's that's the bottom line, right? And so I think what it really speaks to is 
what are we doing to ensure that the pipeline of those coming in, and it doesn't have to necessarily be an 18-year-old or a 22-year-old, but what is the pipeline and how do we work to create that pipeline, whether we buy it, build it, or reskill it, how are we going to ensure that some of these critical mission areas are actually accomplished? All right, here's the ground rules that the partnership writes about. They analyzed the fiscal 2021 attrition rate, a period that ran from October 20 through September 21, the presidential transition, continued uncertainty in the workplace due to the coronavirus pandemic. We focused on voluntary attrition, the number of quits and retirements in a fiscal year, divided by the number of employees at the end of the previous fiscal year. All data and analysis rely on FedScope, the government's online workforce data tool. Um, is that is that clean enough data to be able to make decisions on Angie? Yes, it is. Right. I mean, you can extrapolate it out and it's clean enough. It's good enough. Okay. It's, you know, I think, don't they say statistically speaking, as long as like survey results are at 22%, you can, you can gather at least enough intelligence to make a decision. I would argue that FedScope is probably 80% accurate. Here's the thing that it is missing and the partnership did point this out. Anybody that's not in the GS system is not actually covered in that fed scope. So, you know, like the intelligence community or some of these small FIREA agencies and things, their information's not in there. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say you could add all that in and it's still gonna show that we're not in a crisis. All right, the government-wide attrition rate in fiscal 21 was 6.1%, a little bit higher than fiscal 20, which was 5.5, but fiscal 19 was 6.1 and uh, fiscal 18, 6.0. Retirement's about 53% of the overall government-wide attrition. There's a lot of numbers here that we could parse through. Are there any that jump out at you, Angie, as troubling or particularly heartening? It's heartening that our attrition is kind of staying steady. And I would say that's not a bad attrition rate. And I have to be honest, I zeroed in on DHS's numbers as well. And, you know, that tells a story as well. Like people, let's take the best places to work and people will say, well, you know, it's DHS is always last, the morale, the, the blah, blah, blah. Our, our attrition does not support, does not support that we're in this massive crisis within DHS or, or it doesn't mean that there's not room for improvement. But my point is, is that by and large, the attrition is staying steady. It's has continued to stay steady. So that's heartening. Um, so the other thing, and this isn't an alarm for me, but this is where I think we need to pay attention to the data because we need to, like, as I said, those that are in the, the younger age group, right, or the GS, um, what was it, one through seven, something like, or two through seven, that group is leaving at a, at a quicker rate. That's okay. We know that. And so let's plan around that kind of attrition rather than saying, woe is me and we got to improve the attrition. No, let's let's understand the attrition and it, you know, let's understand why that generation has a tendency not to stay. And then let's build things around it. If, you know, again, if that makes sense, if we've got 53% of the folks leaving our retirement, of course. Well, we know that. So let's build knowledge management sharing. Let's, you know, let's figure out alumni programs that allow these folks to come back and maybe be mentors or come back as rehired annuitants or come back as consultants, whatever it is that we need. Let's just use the data to help us set a path forward rather than looking at it as looking backwards. We've had the re, uh, rehired annuitants program for a while. Has that worked the way that it was originally intended to work in your view, Angie? Um, it, 
And it's got its plus and minuses, right? I, I think in some cases, um, people get upset because they say, you know, folks are like double dipping. Okay, well, you can also go out to the private sector and go to work for a, you know, a major firm and come right back in and 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 do the same work as well. So I think it's working. Um, but I do find that it is primarily at the executive level and the higher grades. We don't typically use it for the folks that are boot, what I'll call boots on the ground. And so if anything, it would be helpful, I think, to see agencies think about ways to expand into that area because there's so much institutional knowledge and it's not just at the executive level, it's also at you know at the worker level at the at the level of which services are actually being provided to citizens there's a lot of knowledge there that i think we should tap into more there's a data set and an observation in this work that i found interesting and special uh, especially in light of opm's guidance recently about um evaluating skills rather than hiring college degrees necessarily this work says the fiscal 21 attrition rate had an inverse relationship to education level. The higher the education level, the lower the attrition rate. Attrition rate highest for those without a high school degree, 8.2%, lowest for those with a doctorate, 5.2%. According to our 21 report, hiring managers may view those without a four-year degree as less competent or unqualified. Uh, and then it makes the observation that basically OPM did um, it, that recruiting and training this group would help create a talent base to replace a substantial portion of the workforce that's eligible to retire in the coming years. That realization has taken the government a long time to get to, hasn't it, Angie? Yeah, because, you know, we equate best and brightest with a 4.0 GPA from a very prestigious school. That, ever since I've been at OPM, that is one thing that I have been trying my best to help us culturally get away from right? Because there is so much talent and we're missing so many segments of society because we're just being arrogant about education. And look, I've got a master's. I had a 4.0. So I'm not downing, I'm not downing education or having a high GPA. What I'm really saying though, is that there are so many talented people in this world and a degree doesn't make you necessarily talented. Furthermore, I personally, I would actually look for the kid that was like a single parent trying to go through community college and work full time and had a 2.5. Why? Because that showed me that they had the guts to do it. They had the determination. They had the passion and that they were a team player. And so that's what I looked for. Right. And so my point is, is that we just have to change our mindset. It doesn't surprise me, though, that folks uh, with high school degrees are leaving at a higher rate. Why? Because of the pay. I would argue that at the entry level, the government is not very good at its pay. Take a transportation security officer that works at an airport, has to make sure every gun, bomb, and drug doesn't go through an airport. They're paid at what, GS4, GS5 level? You can make that same money in the Los Angeles area working at, working at a fast food restaurant. And you're not yelled at, spit on, or have to take a drug test. So I think some of the things that we have to really th examine is what is the market paying for some of, from some of these occupations and get more in line so that we can make those those areas a more livable wage so that people would be more inclined to stay with us. And that oh, that connects to what you mentioned a couple minutes ago about the pay by the schedule for fiscal 21. The attrition rate was 14 and a half percent for GS one to four and 8.7 percent for GS five to seven. 
And obviously both that's way above 6.1, which is the government wide average. Is that just a pay issue or are there other issues that go along with that, Angie? It's definitely not just a pay issue, right? I, I think what it really is, is it's indicative of life. But let's take me, when I joined at 17, the federal government, I joined to to um, to get my degree and then I was going to be out of there. Right. And then all of a sudden I got married and then I had two kids and now I have a mortgage and now I have a car payment. And oh, my God, this government job's not bad. I have health benefits. Right. And so now all of a sudden I'm 30 years old and then all of a sudden I'm 40 years old. And and then the next thing you know, I'm retiring from the federal government at an age somewhere in the 50s. But the point is, is that is that I think it's indicative of life, of where people are in their life. They have options at that point. They're not, they don't have to be tied to a federal government job. They don't even have to necessarily worry about benefits because if you think about it, if I'm not mistaken, under Obama's health care, unless this changed, you can stay on your parents' health care to the age of 26. Okay, well, if that's the case, hey, I can bebop around all over the place until I find myself, right? And so I just think that that's, I think it's it's more that and and we shouldn't get too hung up on the pay. I, I was, just, you know, and I probably shouldn't use pay as an example of that, but it's just one tiny factor, I think, in all of this. So I'm going to put you back in the Chico office uh, in the federal agency. When you look at this data, what do you do today, tomorrow, in the next month to try to address some of these issues? So I think for me, I would take it and it's great that it's generalized, Right. But the story is in is in the specifics. So I would drill down. I would ask my team because I had a bang up team under Kim Lee. I would ask them to go in and drill down and try to find the story behind the story and start holding like some maybe even some focus groups and stuff with the different areas to to try to get an understanding, because I can sit here and hypothesize all day long. I, I myself can create my own urban legends. And what I really need to do instead is sit down like with that group between one just uh, one to seven or whatever, and and have those conversations with them now. What makes you stay? What would make you leave? Like asking people why they left after in an exit survey is a waste of time. I need to find out now what it is that would allow them to stay, or if they left, would they even consider coming back? Right. So my point is, is like generalizations are interesting. But drilling down and really getting to the story behind the story is how you then make decisions that help you to move forward. Second thing I would do is so that that's like for today. Right. The second thing for like tomorrow, as you say, is I would really start thinking about what programs do I need to put in place that are going to uh, allow me to keep that attrition at a rate that I think is manageable, because not all attrition is bad, by the way. In some areas, you want that that attrition because it's healthy for an organization to have turnover. And then for into the future, what I would do is really want to sit down with leadership to say, where where are we going? Right. Where Where is the future headed for DHS? What does what is climate change going to have on its effect for DHS? What about immigration and border migration and all these different things that the hurricanes, you know, all these different things that DHS was dealing with? What does it look like to you in the future? And then how do we collectively map that out so that I can feel ensure that we have enough quality people with the right skills? And I don't care how we get that skill into those particular positions. So that would have been if I was not just queen for the day, but Chico <laughs> for the day. That's what I would have done. <laughs> Angela Bailey, it's great to talk to you. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. 
You can read more about the attrition data in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Nominations are open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. We're looking for nominations for leaders in the federal IT community for their achievements and contributions. You can read more about how to nominate somebody through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Silicon Valley Innovation Program at the Office of Science and Technology Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security is reviewing results from an industry day on addressing software vulnerabilities. The S&T Directorate's doing the work in collaboration with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Melissa O oh is Managing Director of the Silicon Valley Innovation Program at DHS S&T. Melissa, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. What did you learn and what was the message that you had for industry at this industry day? Day. Welcome. Thank you, um, and thanks for having me. Yeah, so our industry that we had was in partnership with uh, with CISA, and um, the the large aspect of that is to try and support um, their interest in improving su- software supply chain vulnerabilities that are uh, occurring. And so our industry day was really to uh, lay out the the need, the pain points, um, lay out exactly the fact that you know software is. Um, critical in everything that we use and operate these days, especially in critical systems. And if anything bad happens, um, if there's an attack, um, you know, it can lead to pretty bad things. And so what we did with the uh, with with our funding opportunity is put out the need um, for um, uh, foundational open source libraries for software bill of materials. Uh, and then also wanting to provide uh, look for value added tooling um, to improve um, uh, the use of these types of capabilities. And so the industry day was our opportunity to share what our needs were, talk about the pain points, um, and then answer a bunch of questions. And so we learned a lot. We learned that there's a large community of supporters um, in this space and that they really want to get involved. Um, and in particular startups, and um, that's who we're looking for um, in terms of uh, the talent pool to help us um, solve these uh, uh, big challenges. The formal title of this topic call is Software Supply Chain Visibility Tools. What does it consist of? What exactly did you ask industry for on a pretty specific level? And what was kind of the tenor of the questions that they asked you in return? Yeah, so um, the the specific ask that we have of the startup community is, look, we, we know that software build materials are really important for understanding kind of like what what software components are in the system? Who built those components? You know, what are some of the software components that they depend on? Um, and so, SBOM is is a is a, is a tool that we're looking to use and to energize the market to um, provide those capabilities for stakeholders in the enterprise. Um, and so, the the the, the main ask that we're asking uh, the startups are to help us build those foundational open source libraries. Um, and in, and the reason why we are doing that open source is because we want to make sure that there's broad adoption. Um, and deployment of those capabilities. It doesn't make sense if uh, if it's not done in a manner that uh, everybody, uh, the global community can use. Um, and so by doing that in a public and transparent manner, we're hoping you know, for, for our startups to be contributing as a cohort, but also anybody who's interested in supporting um, can comment and provide feedback into the, into the process. Um, so that's the main requirement um, that we're asking all the startups to do. But on top of that, because we know startups need to actually make money and survive as a company, um, a a large aspect of what we're doing is asking them, in addition to those open source libraries, please think about your business model. Please build also visibility tools like um, automated SBOM generation, like SBOM enabled vulnerability visualization. 
Um, and then SBOM enabled IDE plugins and SBOM enabled SIEM plugins. Um, and so a number of areas that we're thinking that would provide those value added capabilities to enterprises and system administrators to use SBOM. Um, and so in a, separate from the actual use of the SBOM, we want those capabilities that companies can bring to actually provide value to um, developers and, and others that need to actually protect their, their networks. Either from the industry day responses, feedback, dialogue on this particular project, or more broadly from the work that you do with the startup community, what's the nature of that relationship now? What's the tenor of that relationship right now between DHS and the startup software community in Silicon Valley? They, they want to help. Um, I've been looking for a great opportunity to uh, mobilize the startup community, um, the emerging tech community. They see uh, they're, they're, in the de- they're, they're developing software uh, and they see that this is, this is an issue for them as well. Um, and they want to contribute. They want to help. Uh, and so the tenor is, is great. There's a lot of collaboration. There's a lot of um, excitement and drive to supporting this. So we're really looking forward to the solutions uh, lot, that get submitted. A lot of agencies are trying to do that, are trying to build the kinds of inroads that you already have. What do you think has been the reason that you've had success, as, as you've just described, in doing that, Melissa? I, I, in terms of working with the startups, I think the, the, the inroads is showing that uh, we're, as a program and as an agency, really collaborative. We want to bring them in. We want to show them the, the pain points and we want to iterate with them um, and, and actually do this in a collaborative fashion as opposed to here's our requirement, you know, make, make what we exactly ask for versus tell us what you think could help us. Um, and because of that collaborative approach, I think um, we're getting a lot of startup interest to wanting to work with SVIP, wanting to work with DHS and really just help keep our nation safe. I note that the uh, deadline for this solicitation for the Software Supply Chain Visibility Tools is October 3rd. What happens after that uh, as far as moving this project forward, Melissa? Right. So um, once we get the submissions by October 3rd, we'll go through a a review cycle with our technical and operational teams um, and we'll select companies uh, to uh, do a virtual pitch after that. And so in about I'd say about 60 days after the applications are due, we'll, we'll notify companies of uh, whether they've been invited to pitch. We'll schedule the virtual pitches. And then in approximately 45 to 60 days from there, we'll have them under contract. So you're looking at a contract within 120 days, four months, basically, from when this closes October 3rd, much, much shorter deadline, much, much shorter time frame than a traditional procurement. Yes, absolutely. We've tried to really um, streamline things a lot and really lower the barriers. Startups need to move fast. Uh, and we've tried to, uh, very hard to work with our internal partners to make that happen. And that bridges what you addressed earlier that the Defense Department calls the valley of death, where these companies can't stay in business sometimes long enough to be able to get to where they actually get uh, an invoice paid from the government. Exactly. We, we definitely pay invoices quickly. Um, and that valley of death is huge. You know, part of um, working with the government is not just getting the contracts fast, it's getting the, their invoices paid fast, but it's also helping them um, shape a product that reaches the commercial market where we are a customer at the end of it. Um, and, and building a product where we're not the only customer, but that they, that product can support enterprises and other commercial uh, customers of theirs as well. How does this particular solicitation fit into the broader mission of SVIP and what you and your colleagues are doing there, Melissa? Yeah, so uh, in terms of the the broader, you know, SVIP, this topic is huge because 
we're, um, we're really trying to influence the marketplace here um, and, and really show the demand signal from not just DHS, but from the government, from the broader community that software security um, and software supply chain security is really important. And if we can demonstrate and show that not only can we provide capabilities to the global community, but that those startups, those companies can actually um, uh, build a business out of it, uh, I think it will just show um, a lot of a, a, a lot of good collaboration between industry, the government, and um, and making making our country safer. Is there a collaboration network, Melissa, among the government organizations like yours with the different agencies that are working along these same lines? I'm thinking about DIU in particular, but I'm sure there are others. There are there are definitely many others. 